Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. What sustainability progress have banks and insurers made in the last two years, given the role that financial institutions have as a core component of the economy, and bearing in mind their responsibility to uphold the rigor and resilience of their risk management? Equally significant is their social responsibility to offer vital financial support to the development of sustainable global economies. In this episode of the Sustainable Finance Podcast, I discuss with Fong Gomard of Mazars the need for the financial industry to reboot and shift to a more responsible finance model. Gomard is Sustainable Finance Global Leader at Mazars, which has just published its 2023 Sustainability Practices Stock Take for Banks and Insurers. And most of the data that we will be discussing today comes from that report. Hello, Fong, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thank you, Paul. Very happy to be here. Good. Now, we're going to launch into our program today with some questions from your survey. Almost all of the banks and insurers uh, that you've surveyed have allocated responsibility for sustainability-related matters to members of their senior management, yet still have significant knowledge gaps in socially related sustainability issues, such as employee and human rights matters, and in assessing climate risk drivers. What can they do to close these critical knowledge gaps? Thank you, Paul. Um, so yeah, I'd like to start with a, a short introduction before I answer your question. Please do. Um, so despite the fact that environmental and societal topics have increasingly get into the spotlights, banks and insurers still struggle to fully comprehend how these factors might affect them and then establish reliable metrics to set targets and then monitor progress. And addressing those questions should really become over time, if it's not already the case, an integral part of the operational framework for banks and insurers. Why is that? The main reason is that these factors translate into drivers that impact the conventional credit and underwriting risks that banks and insurers are exposed to. And so back to your question, and let's start with the socially related matters, which refer to issues such as employees' well-being, human rights, labor rights matters. Um, Indeed, 62% of our respondents have acknowledged gaps in these areas. And our recommendation is that they need to forge a localized understanding of social sustainability issues. Indeed, social sustainability encompasses diverse context-specific issues varying across cultures, regions, and socioeconomic conditions. So financial institutions should prioritize adopting a localized understanding of stakeholders' needs and expectations in each of the jurisdictions they operate to effectively address evolving social considerations. Regarding climate risk drivers, so 
assessing climate risk and understanding transmission channels, materiality, impact on business strategies presents significant challenges and how to address these challenges. I'd say in terms of gaps, it comes to having a coordinated approach for climate risk upskilling. So really addressing those knowledge gaps by enhancing climate risk integration. Firms should promote internal collaboration and knowledge sharing across different teams, fostering a holistic understanding of climate change risks and their implications for an effective navigation and adaptation. And the example I would like to take is credit risk. So who in a bank doesn't understand credit risk? And who in a bank doesn't understand the role that they play or can play in managing that risk, managing in the very broad sense of the term. So making day to day decisions, uh, mitigating that risk when we feel it's going beyond our appetite, reporting and escalating matters as and when needed. And really, climate risk should over time reach that same level of maturity. So that's significant, given some other data from the report that says that 90% of your insurance and bank clients use external credit rating information on counterparties to evaluate climate-related and environmental and energy-related risks. So tell our followers how counterparty credit ratings support these climate, environmental, and energy risk evaluations? Yes, so it's true that um, external credit rating information on counterparties is evolving to become an essential tool for evaluating climate-related and environmental risks. And like you said, our study identified that 90% of our respondents see this as an important data source. So. Why is that that it is so popular, if I may say? It's because users of credit rating expect to be able to grasp the impact of climate change on the credit worthiness of their clients through the assessment performed by rating agencies. For them, they can then consume that information and in turn perform better internal risk-based due diligence. This is based on the principle that climate change is a source of financial risk and therefore external credit assessment institutions, so ECAIs, are expected to incorporate climate change risk in their credit ratings. This means, for instance, that greater vulnerability to climate change would mechanically be associated with lower credit ratings. However, I want to give a little warning here. We may want to be cautious. And anyway, it's not uh, by choice because regulators do require that any user of credit ratings should regularly conduct their own due diligence uh, on these ratings so as to not become overly reliant on them as that could lead to relevant financial risk being ignored. I want to bring us back to uh, 2008 when you know we had a big financial crisis because 
we were all very reliant on uh, credit ratings back then, which were all very consistent and all very coherent. And yet, you know, we missed a, a lot of the picture and it led us to, to something that was really challenging in the financial industry. Yeah, so, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, go ahead. No, no. So I just wanted to say that sure. uh, the European Central Bank published a report about a year ago that flags areas for improvement in terms of climate-related disclosures by rating agencies. And so one of the area where they found uh, credit agencies not doing enough, it was around the granularity of definitions of what climate change risk is and how transparently they were disclosing the models and methods used to estimate the exposure to climate uh, change risk. Well, that's all, that's very telling because based on your research and a lot of other information that I've been gradually absorbing over time, how revealing can the disclosures or are the disclosures that accompany sustainable and ESG banking and insurance products? I think this has been especially problematic, as you suggested already, in the fixed income markets over time. Yes. So clearly what we're seeing is that financial services firms aim to harness the opportunities arising from climate change and other sustainability matters. Uh, and the field of uh, sustainable finance products and services has expanded uh, significantly, both in terms of size, scope, and but also offering. However, the um, constantly evolving and relatively immature nature of the sustainable finance uh, market poses challenges to these firms as they seek to navigate that complex landscape. And one of them relates to disclosure, the disclosure that they make. One thing that uh, came out from our study is that insurers are less inclined than banks to disclose sustainability-related information, whether within what we call the Pillar 3 disclosure, which are public disclosure um, on their risk management framework, or in de dedicated disclosures for sustainability-related financial products. Obviously, it's not entirely up to them what they disclose and how they disclose it. Uh, and for financial market participants that manufacture or sell financial products and perform uh, portfolio management services in Europe, they have to comply with something called SFDR, so the, the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. The UK also published its own version just last week, and it's called SDR, Sustainability Disclosure Requirements. And both regimes, um, with their di distinct approach, are seeking to overcome information asymmetries as well as greenwashing. Well, so financial products that are marketed as sustainable should do as they claim and have the evidence to back it up. Okay, now, of course, this is a very important part of the regulatory process that we are um, focusing on 
in all of these jurisdictions on an ongoing basis. So how important to climate and energy-related risks are the knowledge gaps that continue to exist since your 2021 Responsible Banking Practices Benchmark Study was made? Uh, some of them are clearly still um, affecting um, the process that these firms are using. Yes. So maybe a, a quick um, uh, exercise in setting the scene. So sure. financial institutions have always managed risks. Uh, so what climate change risks are so different to apprehend? First, they are far, they have a far reaching impact uh, that we are yet to understand, meaning that it crosses across the entire economy, all types of businesses and sectors, but also all geographies. So it is anticipated that they could have a much larger impact than any other types of risk that we have encountered so far. Second, they are deeply uncertain in the sense that we are seeing an unprecedented speed in the change that it causes, never modeled before, and that we can only rely on a limited, uh, in a limited manner on our historical experience. The, the, the third fact is that they are endogenous risks. Indeed, the magnitude at which they may crystallize is dependent on what we are doing today or are not doing. And we are, we are in the middle of COP28, so that's, that's very uh, timely. And the last uh, aspect of uh, climate change risks is that they are non-linear. The probability of distribution and impact cannot be inferred from historical data. The tail risk that it encompasses is not considered in the traditional ways that we build and run pricing models, for instance. So financial institutions have still the flexibility to address uh, climate-related and environmental risk in one of those two ways. One, it's integrating them into existing risk categories or treating them as separate and standalone risks so that they can mobilize uh, internal resources and you know, keep that as an as a ad hoc topic. But really, it is highly recommended that it becomes a fully integrated um, risk uh, management framework at some point. Yes, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so the, the key challenge uh, I'd say is the time horizon. Incorporating climate considerations into risk appetite statements presents a significant challenge, primarily related to the time horizon over which these considerations uh, will uh, materialize. And these horizons encompass the short and medium and long term. But our former short, medium and long term were one, three to five years. Now, when we talk about climate, we go to 2050, uh, if not beyond that. And how do you take immediate action to mitigate this long-term risk when, you know, in your business planning models, you effectively do not consider things that would go uh, this far. So conducting measurements, is actually very, very challenging for, for all the firms still. 
Well, and as you know, uh, of course, in your business, that ex climate assessment technologies uh, are changing rapidly, as are the ways that we use them. So what kind of climate assessment technologies are available today, Fuang, that can help close these knowledge gaps? There's obviously a plethora of climate change risk assessment technologies, which is a good and a bad thing. And the good thing is that the discipline is benefiting from that momentum, from those innovations. We're going further and faster. The bad thing, if I could say, is which one should we go for? And the answer is probably to go for several of them, uh, because you may want to have different sources, tools and results that you can contrast and compare. There isn't yet a, a, a golden source of truth. Uh, I mean, at least we haven't figured that out yet. And again, remember that time where all ratings were all aligned and we ended up with something still traumatizing the great financial crisis. So, in terms of technologies, you have a landscape with different actors or providers. You have all the area of climate data with platforms that provide access to comprehensive climate data that are crucial for, for banks and insurers to stay informed about climate related trends and uh, risk. And so this would include um, institutions such as meteorological agencies, uh, firms that provide satellite imageries and other associated climate models. You have geospatial tools that enable banks to assess physical climate risk by mapping the geographic distribution of their assets and evaluating exposure to climate-related events such as floods, wildfires, rising sea levels. You also have big data analytics tools that helps banks process large volumes of data related to climate risk. And those tools can analyze historical climate data, assess the impact of extreme weather events and identify, and that's when it becomes interesting, correlations between climate related factors and financial performance. And then you have uh, also tools um, that are focusing on climate risk modelings, with models that incorporate climate scenarios, physical and transition risk, and, and simulate potential future outcomes. So th there's a lot of things. Uh, firms are trying to, uh, as much as possible, leverage what they have in-house already, because like I said, they have always, it has been the core activity of managing risk, but now they really need to augment their existing infrastructure with new technologies and new forms of data. And like I said, several of them in order to really grasp what it means to monitor and manage uh, climate change risks. Yes, I'm, I'm especially uh, interested in the weather-related technologies that are being developed because they seem to be at least ha have 
very good potential for longer range cycles of analysis as well. So we'll see how all of that develops and come back for another conversation um, in the future. Uh, so Fong, where online can our listeners learn more about Mazar's work in transition finance? And how can followers of the Sustainable Finance podcast contact you with questions about the topics that we've discussed in today's episode? So there is a, a Mazar.com website with a dedicated page for sustainable finance. So you would find uh, in there all the resources that we have produced uh, over the last uh, couple of years. And we have also something called the financial services blog, where you would find uh, papers that are more uh, thought leadership type of content uh, that I would also recommend your followers uh, check out. In terms of getting in touch with me, my details are on that mazar.com website. And so I, I would love to, to get in touch with any of your followers who would have more questions and would like to discuss these matters uh, further. Terrific. And yes, please do provide us with a couple of your white papers and or research documents that we can attach to this program when we drop the, the, the podcast episode so that our followers can have quick access to that information. And I want to thank you again very much, Fuang Gomard of Mazars. And to our followers, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thank you.